Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study uh, here today. Also for our friends at the hangar in Montana, and also our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study as well. Last Sunday, I was with the uh, satellite, the church in uh, Rancho, at Purpose Church Rancho, and just had a fabulous time. Let me just tell you, if you live out Rancho Way or live out east of here, or you have friends that you want to invite, and it's just a little difficult to come uh, down to the Pomona campus, that is just a great, great service. It really is. You know, we always say the thing that's said about our church uh, more than anything else, this is not something we say, it's what's said about us, is it's either the biggest small church around or the smallest big church around. And Rancho really has that atmosphere where it feels so warm and intimate, and yet there's just such great music and the same preaching that we have here, and it is just a great, great time. So really encourage you, if that would fit your needs or the needs of somebody that you're reaching out to, your oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15, in your sphere of influence, your assignment from God is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you. Now, uh, just a couple of things before we get into our study, um, just a couple of fun items. First of all, remember the movie that our church produced, Turnaround Jake, uh, Pastor Jared, who is just leading worship here, was the star of it. Uh, Sean Svoboda um, uh, is the producer. Robbie Wiltsey was the director who's up in sound uh, booth here uh, today. Well, Jill Svoboda, who's kind of their publicist, okay, she contacted me the, a week ago and said that the list just came out of the 100 top-grossing Christian films of 2015. 100 top-grossing films of 2015, and out of those top 100, number 23 on the list was Turnaround Jake uh, from our church. So is that awesome? That is so, so, so cool. And then I left you in suspense a couple of weeks ago, but Jessica Cabral, who's been up here leading worship, she and her boyfriend Jonathan lead worship uh, sometimes at 11-11 service or at the Hub at 5 o'clock over in Claremont. Um, their parents, Nigel and Marcus, were Mary and Joseph. They sing in the choir. Mary and Joseph and come celebrate Christmas. They're part of the worship team at, 9, at 9.45. So four members of our music ministry team were on American Idol this past week. I left you in suspense. Does Jessica make it to Hollywood? Now, if you have this thing called Facebook or uh, if you have this thing called your own television set, you may already know this. Let's hear it for Jessica. Yay. <laughs> A spoiler alert if you've DVR'd it, but she made it through the group round this past week as well. So she's, she's still, still going strong. Very exciting. Okay, today we continue our chapter by chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, at night at the Hub at Claremont at 5 o'clock, we're doing a verse-by-verse study from the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we're going to look at peacemakers and, and persecution. And that's what we're looking at in our verse-by-verse study tonight. But in the morning, we're doing chapter-by-chapter, chapter, and today we come to chapter 5. Verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, we don't know which feast this was, but whatever feast it was, there'd be over a million people would be in Jerusalem. And one of them is going to receive an amazing miracle from Jesus. Uh, we've got so, what the Bethesda pool looks like today. This is after archaeological excavations. Here's one picture. Here's another picture of what it looks like today in Jerusalem. You've got an artist's rendering of the location of where it would have been back then in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Bethesda means house of mercy. Isn't that appropriate when we get into our story today? There were two big pools in Jerusalem. They were deep enough to swim in, and people used to lay out by them. And beneath the pool, there was a spring. And so you know when there's a spring underneath a body of water, every so often it bubbles up and troubles the water. Well, there was a rumor around Um, I think that's the best term you could use. Some Bible scholars call it a superstition. So at worst, it was a superstition. At best, it was a rumor that that was an angel stirring the water. And the rumor, rumor or even the superstition was the first one that got into the water after the angel stirred it up would be the one that would get their healing. And so people are waiting and waiting there, and they're hoping and they're hoping. And time and time again, this man particularly that we're talking about was disappointed time and time again. It was a hopeless place. It was a depressing place. Karen Ocker writes, this is like an ER waiting room without a doctor or a nurse. Unlike an emergency room where eventually you will get medical help no matter how long you wait, unlike that, this was one where they waited and they waited and hope and help never came. And so in this context, Jesus decides to do a miracle for a very unlikely guy. So we're going to see he was unlikely for five different reasons. He was also in many ways unworthy of this. But he was the one that had the greatest need. And so that's who Jesus was drawn to. You know, we're not supposed to have favorite children. That causes great hurt and woundedness in a family. We're not supposed to have favorite grandchildren because that causes dysfunction within a family. We should fight both of those with all of our strength. But actually, we do have favorite children, don't we? And you've heard me say this before. Your favorite child is the one that's going through the hardest time. How many of you would say amen to that? Your, 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 Your favorite grandchild is the one that needs you the most, that's going through the hardest time. And let me just encourage you, If your heart is broken here today, you are God's favorite child. God doesn't have favorites. We're all same before him. But actually, in some ways, there is a hint in Scripture that he does have some favorite children, and it's the brokenhearted. The Bible says that he is near to the brokenhearted. And if you came in here with a broken heart, something happened within the last months or weeks or days, something happened this week that has broken your heart, he is especially near to you because he is drawn to those that need him the most. And so even though this man is a very unlikely candidate for a healing, even though he is unworthy, as we're going to see, for a healing, he was the one that Jesus was drawn to because he was the one with the greatest need. Now, reason number one he was unlikely is this guy didn't have many years left on earth. Verse five, one who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, the average lifespan, historians tell us for this time period, for a man was 40 years of age. So even if this had happened to him at birth, even if this was a birth defect that had caused his disability, he's only got on average two more years to live. And if it happened to him later, uh, he's not just in the fourth quarter or two-minute drill. He's in overtime. So why didn't Jesus heal a child that had his or her whole life in front of him? Why heal somebody that's just got a little bit of time left? 
Reason number two, this guy didn't even ask for a miracle. Every other miracle in the Bible, they sought out Jesus. This man doesn't seek out Jesus. Jesus seeks out him. He doesn't even ask for a miracle. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Now that dare I say it with regard to Jesus, it seems like a silly question, a foolish question. It seems like a kind of an insensitive question. Of course he wants to get well. Does he? Do you want to get well? Do I want to get well? I tell you, in my life, my rut may be unhealthy, but I love my rut. And the only thing scarier than my rut is being out of my rut. Uh, Tuesday nights, we have Celebrate Recovery, Hurts, Hangups, and Habits. And even though they drag us down, our hurts are comfortable to us. Our habits are comfortable to us. Our hang-ups are comfortable to us. And so the first thing Jesus asks is, do you really want to get well? Are you more comfortable just staying in that place where you're at, or do you want to get well? I was thinking about it this past week as I studied this passage. The only thing scarier than failure is success sometimes. God really convicted me. There were three areas of our church where just this week we had some developments where either we broke through in a tremendous time of blessing and success or success, or we see that that's on the horizon. And can I confess to you as your pastor, you know what my first emotion was? Fear. I was like, oh my goodness, that's going to be a challenge. If God gives us success, if he blesses us in that area, that is going to be a challenge. And so sometimes the only thing scarier than failure is success. And so he asked me and he asked you and he asked this man, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And so that refers to that rumor, that superstition, that the first one in the the water gets the healing. Reason number three he was unlikely is this guy is going to get Jesus in a lot of trouble. Verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. You know, that's the wonderful thing. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And you know what Jesus does? He helps us want it. He helps us want it even if we're scared of it. And then he produces the healing. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, the rabbis had all kinds of laws concerning the Sabbath. You couldn't wear a needle around your neck uh, because that would be work. You could only walk a total of a thousand yards from your home, about 10 football field lengths from your home. You couldn't tie two threads together. That would be considered work on the Sabbath to tie two pieces of thread together. You couldn't carry a load on the Sabbath. That's the one that this man uh, violated. And this is my favorite It was forbidden for a woman to look in the mirror for fear that she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. And so they told the women they couldn't look in a mirror because if you look in a mirror, there just ain't no way you're waiting until the next day. You got to pluck that out right away and that would be considered uh, to be work. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is that man that healed you? That's not what they asked, is it? They asked, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Who violated our law? Not, I mean, this is heartbreaking. 
they are so into their religion, into their ritualistic religion, that instead of saying, praise God uh, for somebody healed after 38 years, praise God, who is this miracle worker? Who, who is the wonderful one who did this thing? Instead, they said, who is it that told you you could pick up your mat and walk? They were so caught up in their comfort zone that they weren't able to be on the front row of when God was doing a great thing. And let us be so careful that we get out of our priorities so that we forget to rejoice when God is doing something wonderful. You know, um, we see young adults in church and praise God that we're reaching young adults, but then they don't do something exactly the way we want them to do it. And we focus on that rather than just rejoicing that we have young adults and that we have young people getting baptized and following Jesus and on fire for Jesus. May we never get out of whack like these Pharisees were and focus on the trivial things rather than on the truly important things. And so they ask him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now the story takes a turn. Because up until this time, he, as he's portrayed there, is just a sweet old man. Doesn't have many years left. Didn't even ask for a miracle. He can't help any of that. Jesus sought him out. He's going to get Jesus in trouble. Can't help it. But now, not only is he an unlikely person to get a miracle, he's also a bit unworthy for it. Reason number four, the guy was sick because he had sinned. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, first of all, notice, circle those two words, found him. Jesus found him. Why? Because his work was not done yet. He had healed him physically. He was going to be able to walk for a couple of years before he died, but that wasn't the most important thing. Jesus knew the healing was a bridge by which the more important thing had to be done, which is he needed to be forgiven so that he'd go to heaven. It was way more important that Jesus find him and he was concerned for a spiritual condition than that he merely uh, healed him. Okay. Now, here's a danger in the church today. And I see this pendulum go back and back like this, generation by generation. In previous generations, the accusation against uh, typical followers of Christ and the church was that we were so heavenly-minded that we didn't take care of people this side of heaven. And so 50 years ago, the argument was, you're just all about getting people ready to, for, to go to heaven, but you're not taking care of their physical needs as Jesus commanded to clothe those that need clothing, to minister to the poor, to take care of the homeless, to feed the hungry, all those kind of things. So in response to that criticism, Christians responded to it, but then they went too far the other direction. And what you find today in many parts of the body of Christ is this huge emphasis on taking care of the poor and feeding the hungry. And don't get me wrong, we are all about that as a church. We're the biggest feeding ministry in all of Pomona. Uh, we've got here the biggest clothing ministry in all of Pomona, and homeless ministry, and furniture ministry, and, and all the other ministries to take care of the physical needs of the people of our city and of the Inland Valley and of different places all around the world. Just gave $155,000 for the children of Thailand to get education and to meet their physical needs and to meet their spiritual needs. But here's the problem. May we never forget in our pursuit of meeting people physical needs that by far the most important thing is that they be prepared for eternity. 
I remember a couple of weeks ago with John 3, I had this rope up here. Uh, this has become the most unpopular rope in all of our church. Everybody's asking for the rope. Uh, Bible studies asking for the rope. Uh, Sarah Holmstrom, uh, Eric, Pastor Eric's wife, wanted it for high school ministry, and somebody wanted it for a men's Bible study. And I took it to Rancho Cucamonga with me. Remember, it was a 100-foot rope, but at the end of it was this little red tape that was about that much, and we said that represents our life today. Just a blink of an eye, but out into eternity is the rest of the rope. 100 feet of rope, little couple of inches at the end to represent our life here. And let us be so careful that we don't say the most important thing is to feed people here, to clothe people here, to minister to physical needs here. Let us do those things because Jesus told us to do them, but they should also be a vehicle to prepare people for eternity. What good is it to give a person a full stomach for a couple of years before they go to eternity in hell? What good is it to clothe a person so they're clothed before an eternity in hell? What good is it in this situation for Jesus to have healed this man? He's got a couple more years of walking instead of being invalid if he ends up in hell. And so later Jesus found him at the temple because his work was not done just after healing him and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, sickness is not always a result of sin, okay? Got to make that very, very clear. We don't want to put some guilt trip on people or lay guilt trips on us or or anybody. Uh, Sickness is not always a result of sin. As a matter of fact, sometimes the better life you live, the more godly life you live will get you sick. Uh, How do you back that up, Glenn? Well, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. Those four things are said about him. Blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. You know what that got him? It got him sick and a lot of other bad stuff as well. But on the other hand, as you go to the next page of your study outline, it is true that sometimes sickness is the result of our sin. With the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, Paul writes to them, because news had gotten back to Paul, that they were sinning in connection with the Lord's Supper, with communion. They were using it as a chance to get drunk. They were using it as a chance uh, for gluttony, uh, for overeating. They were also using it to promote injustice. And so those that had a lot of money would fill up with great food right in the presence of people that were still hungry, all within the body of Christ. And so there was sin connected with the Lord's Supper. And so Paul says to them in verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Actually, God had taken their lives. Now with this man, was it a natural consequence of sin? Maybe he got drunk and uh, fell and uh, injured himself, and so that's why he was disabled. Maybe he had gotten into a fight. Maybe he had picked a fight and got wounded in that fight, so that's why he was disabled. We don't know. Was it inflicted by God because of some sin in, in some other area? Either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus heals him and tells him to stop sinning. Now, reason number five is this guy will get Jesus busted. Now, I have to admit, I had to change my view of this man, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope my previous uh, view is right, and I hope this time uh, I'm wrong. But it's amazing that Bible scholars, you know, I often kind of uh, put, give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And I'll say things like, you know, he was so grateful uh, after he's healed and Jesus confronts him on his sin. He's so happy. He tells the Pharisees it's Jesus that did it because he wanted to honor and glorify Jesus. That's the best possible perspective on it. 
But in the Bible commentaries that I read this week and the Bible scholarship on this, there's a very good chance that that is not why he ran and tattled on Jesus. Uh, It may be he was trying to keep himself out of trouble. That's the best possibility. The worst possibility is he was irritated because Jesus had confronted him with his sin. And so because of that irritation, he goes over to the Pharisees and says, hey, guess you want to know who did it? He did it. So that's the worst scenario. The middle scenario is he was just trying to keep himself out of trouble because he was scared. The best scenario is he went and told them in order to honor Jesus. This man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So to break their rules, they persecuted him. But now that he claimed to be equal with God, God come in human form, now they want to kill him, and they would pursue that desire until they had crucified him a a number of years later. Now, why did Jesus walk up to this man and heal him? Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. He, had see, he saw his father healing people, so he did what his dad did. He healed people. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God talks? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God acts? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what priorities are important? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks? Look at Jesus. And so he simply healed him, The neediest man around the pool of Bethesda, the one in the greatest need, he did it because he had seen his father do it. Ken Keary writes, Jesus sensed the movements of the father the way the tide sensed the movements of the moon. Those movements determined his. Spiritual power is a result of staying connected to the father. First, when I'm connected to the father, there is spiritual fruit. That is, things that last for eternity. In a few chapters from now, we're going to study John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Would you repeat that last phrase with me out loud together? Apart from me, you can do nothing. One more time out loud together. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I ask myself the question, Glenn, do you really believe this? And I'll ask you the same question. Do we really believe this? That apart from Jesus, we can't do anything that's going to last count for eternity. We can't do anything apart from him. Because it would change our lives if we truly believe that apart from him, we can do nothing. We'll say, well, how can we go about making sure that we follow his movements the way the son follows the movements of the father? Psalm 5, verse 3. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. You have, we have got to be spending daily time in this book and in prayer if we want to know the mind of the Father. If we want to know the assignment of the Father, this is absolutely essential. 
And maybe you're a morning person, so you resonate with the psalmist. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. Maybe you're a middle-of-the-day person. During lunch hour, Lord, I hear you hear my voice. Maybe you're a before-you-go-to-bed person. Before I go to sleep, Lord, uh, you hear my voice. I don't know when it is for you. You may be morning, middle of the day, or evening. But I want to give you one more challenge before we're done with the first part of the year. Uh, And that is these daily Bible reading programs. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for daily spending time with God? I just want to ask you, if you've never had a plan before, 15 minutes a day, morning, lunch break, evening. You pick your time of the day. 15 minutes. You spend five minutes reading the one chapter from the New Testament Psalms or Proverbs. You spend another five minutes thinking about how it applies to your life and another five minutes praying about it. And it'll change your life. It'll put you in touch with God's eternal mission, his plan, his purpose uh, for that particular day. You say, Glenn, January is already gone. I'm giving you permission to skip the book of Luke, okay? You can skip the book of Luke. You still got Mark, Matthew, and John yet, yet to come. Just skip the book of Luke. Start in tomorrow. Now, maybe you're one of those people that the only way you can skip something and not check the boxes is a year of uh, psychotherapy is the only way you can pull that thing off, you know. Uh, there's no way you're going to be able to pull that off. So skim it tonight. Read it like a novel tonight. Read the book of Luke. Start fresh uh, t- uh, tomorrow morning and have that daily time every day. In the morning, Lord, uh, I seek your voice. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice uh, as I speak to you in prayer and, and you hear, uh, and I hear your voice as I read your word because apart from me, you can do nothing. Second, when I'm connected to the Father, there are leadings, okay? You'll sense when we slow down enough and get quiet enough, we can sense the Holy Spirit, Jesus within us, leading us in a certain direction. Uh, I've seen this on TV, and so I know it to be true. But, uh, um, but being there, we went to Lambeau Field, Kimberly and I, to see a Packers game. And, uh, and we're sitting there in Lambeau Field, and I never knew how they orchestrate it at these NFL games. I didn't realize that. Is that when the other teams, the opposing team's quarterback goes behind center, they scream as loud as they can. Why? Because they don't want the rest of the team to hear the signals from their quarterback. But then what I didn't, I realized that because I'd seen it on TV. But what I didn't realize was that when your quarterback, in this case, Aaron Rodgers of the Packers, when he gets up there, all the media in the stadium says, shh, shh. And here's 50, 60,000 people, get quiet so that Aaron's signals can be heard by the other team clearly so they don't make a mistake. Opposing team, scream your head off, mess him up. You know, the greatest thing for a home team is when you get a five-yard penalty for delay, you know, because you messed up. The quarterback couldn't hear what, they couldn't hear what he was saying. That's their greatest moment. They feel like, you know, we've contributed to the, to the defeat of the enemy on that kind of thing. But when your guy is doing it, quiet down so you can hear. And you know what? There are so many voices out there trying to keep you to, from hearing the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's cultural voices. There are voices within the world and society. There, there are satanic voices. There is Satan. Satan's goal for you is to shout so loud that you can't hear the still small voice saying, go in this direction. So you got to get alone. You got to get away from distractions. You got to get quiet at least once a day. And you know that 15 minutes you'll find will grow over time. And boy, you'll find if I got enough leadings in 15 minutes, what leadings could I get in 20 minutes or in 30 minutes? Because I'm, when I'm connected to the Father, 
There's spiritual fruit for eternity. And when I'm connected to the Father, there are leadings. Romans 8, 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Let me give you some examples. Uh, The Bible talks about Jesus being led by the Spirit to go into the desert. Matthew 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Bible talks about the Spirit stopping Paul from going certain places. Now, that's interesting. Stopping Paul from going. Now, where where did Paul want to go? It must have been something really bad. Oh, my goodness. He must have been stopping Paul from going to something bad. No. He stopped him from doing something good. Because the good is often the enemy of the best. Satan's goal for our life, if he can't get us to do bad stuff, okay, his goal is to get us to do bad stuff. But if he fails in that, his fallback goal is to get us so busy doing good stuff that we don't get around to doing the best stuff. That's his fallback plan, his fallback attack. Acts 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. These are provinces in the nation of Turkey today, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, this province of Asia doesn't mean that they avoided Asia. They were in Asia. Basically, Israel and that part of the Middle East is is where the continents of Africa and Asia come together. So the gospel is first preached on the continent of Africa and Asia. But those are the first two continents, and it had been exclusively there until this moment. So they said, well, we're, we're preaching in Asia, so let's just go to another province in Asia. And the Holy Spirit stops them from doing a good thing. Is it a good thing to want to preach in the province of Asia? Absolutely. But they slowed down enough, they got quiet enough, that they could hear the leading of the Holy Spirit say, don't go there. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you are from European background? That is Spanish, uh, Hispanic, or German, or English, or Irish. How many of you have that kind of a background, European background? Okay. You need to praise God that they slowed down enough to listen. Because you know what happened? And they're scratching their head. We thought it was a good thing. Well, let's just wait on the Lord. You know what happened? Paul had a vision that night of a man from Macedonia, today the nation of Greece, the continent of Europe. And he said, come over and help us. Come preach to us as well. Come save us. Come tell us the gospel like you've told it in the continent of Africa and Asia. And so now they got the green light from the Holy Spirit and they went and preached. And how many are glad they did? Anybody want to say amen to that? The Bible talks about the Spirit telling Philip to go witness to an Ethiopian. In this case, uh, somebody from Africa. And so this continues the African uh, outreach that goes on from Israel. They are in the corner of Africa and Asia. Acts 8, verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Okay, our oikos, Greek word for household. 8 to 15, in your sphere of influence, people you work with, go to school with, in your family. What I want us to do as a church is let's get quiet enough in the next few days to hear the Lord tell us who from our oikos we're going to invite. Two weeks from today, we have a tremendous opportunity. One of the great apologists in the world today defending the faith of Christianity, Mark Middleberg, is going to be here at all three morning services. And he's going to preach a message, 20 reasons we can be confident that Christianity is true. 
And he's going to give us 20 reasons, some of them scientific, some of them philosophical, some archaeological, some historical, um, you know, uh, uh, different ones uh, that he's going to tell. Archaeological, historical, philosophical, scientific, prophetic, fulfilled prophecy. He's going to give us 20 reasons, and it's going to be such an encouragement to us that are followers of Jesus, but I know we're going to have this moment of regret. I know I'm going to have it. I guarantee I'm going to have this moment of regret. I'm going to say, this is wonderful stuff. Why didn't I invite so-and-so? That's what I'm going to think, okay? Because we've asked him to tailor it to our friends. We're going to be blessed. It's going to be very encouraging material, but I've asked him, would you tailor your message for the friends we're going to bring with us. And, and, and we got to get quiet enough so we know whose chariot we're supposed to go to that chariot and stay near it. Who, who we're supposed to bring here to be near Mark Middleberg's chariot so he can share 20 reasons we can be confident that Christianity is true. Now, I want to tell you a story, and I get chills down my spine just telling this story. Um, remember a couple weeks ago I was speaking on John chapter 3 and on Nicodemus. And we talked about this man is one of the most unlikely that we're studying today to have God do a miracle. But Nicodemus was the most unlikely to be a follower of Jesus. Everything to lose to follow Jesus, no reason to follow Jesus. The, the person you'd just be blown away if they became. He was almost like the Pope of the nation of Israel. That's basically what he was. So how is he going to leave all that behind and become a follower of Jesus? And I had you think about who would be the person you can least imagine coming to Christ in your personal circle, and then I ask you as a nation, uh, as in, in the world today. And I came up with Richard Dawkins. Anybody remember me saying Richard Dawkins? Most prominent atheist in the world today, um, so, believes that Christians are mentally ill. Uh, he wrote the book, The God Delusion. He is the Madeline Murray O'Hare, for those of you that are older like me, uh, of our time. Richard Dawkins is the most prominent atheist in the world today. And I said, uh, for example, you know, Nicodemus, you know, it's amazing that he became a follower of Jesus. It'd be just as amazing if Richard Dawkins became a follower of Christ. I preached that on a Sunday. 48 hours later, I'm in a pastor's meeting. And one of my friends, out of the blue, says, hey, Glenn, have you heard the rumor? I said, what? Richard Dawkins is going to church. I passed out cold. Because... I'm telling you, gift of faith, not one of my strong ones. I have the, the gift of doubt and worry. That's, that's the fear. Doubt. And, and I was like, what? What? You're kidding me. What? And I was like, Thomas, unless you show me the holes in his hands and the, the spear in his side, unless you show me on the internet, I will not believe it. And so I began to Google it. And sure enough, those rumors are out there that Richard Dawkins has been seen uh, going, going to church. Well, who's your Richard Dawkins? Invite them two weeks from today. Identical message at all three morning services. 20 reasons we can be confident that Christianity is true. Third, when I'm connected to the Father, there's joy. He says to the Pharisees, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He says, how can you possibly have the love of God in your hearts and you see this man and all you can think about is he broke one of your laws rather than the fact that he has been healed. I don't want to miss what God's doing. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. That's why we need that daily time. You can get this at the Resource Center. Pick this up at the Resource Center uh, today and have that time where he shows you the path for your life that day. Um, he gives you joy in his presence and focuses you with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
that's the, the mission statement for our church, finding purpose in Christ, in community with each other for the journey on our way to heaven. Start the day asking God, what's my assignment today? Why am I here today, Lord? What's my reason for being alive? What's my mission? What's my purpose? Uh, what's my plan? Show up and report for duty Every morning, I see Sandra Jones here with the red hat on the front. Been to Iraq, I think, a couple of times or so. Uh, a diehard Packers fan, by the way. She made me a Packers um, sweat cloth or whatever, the tie around the back. Maybe I'll wear that on Super Bowl Sunday because I'm still in denial, okay? But anyway, she's been to Iraq a couple times. Um, uh, show up for duty. Report for duty every day. Show up and report for duty. Start the day asking God, what's my assignment today. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand together for our closing uh, benediction. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, the prayer room is available right off the main floor here. Um, The prayer team, uh, prayer partners are there. They'd love to pray with you if that would be an encouragement to you in any way. We have seen miracles come out of that room and, and, and so we'd love to pray with you if that would be an encouragement. For our benediction, let's, um, Pete, I don't know if you can find it this fast, but you don't need to. I can just read it. John, John 15, verse 5, the one with the, the vines, um, uh, the grapes behind it. John 15, uh, verse 5. I don't know if we can find that quickly enough. John 5, I'll just, I'll just read it out loud. We don't need to have it up there behind us. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Let's say that last part out loud together. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God bless you. Have a great, great day.